And uh, welcome to Magic Numbers. This is episode number 23, Neon Loneliness, Motorcycle Emptiness and other Kamigawa themes. Uh, so today I'm going to be talking about the set primer, uh, show you some basic numbers uh, related to the set, uh, talk a bit about removal because I think that it's very important to position yourself well with the removal quality in the beginning of the format. And uh, then we're going to dive into some archetype predictions and we're going to chat about um, which cards may be important and undervalued in, uh, in the archetypes in the beginning and which possible combinations of cards are going to be interesting to test uh, in this stage of discovery that the set is going to be uh, in for the first couple of weeks. And as always, just to give people time to join the stream i'm going to be having my soapboxy moment at the beginning and today's preamble is about different philosophies of designing a set now as it has been repeated several times already um the kamigawa neon dynasty was designed by uh, dave humphreys an ex-pro uh, probably genius um on so many levels because he's got like phd and mit in biochemistry, then he was a magic pro, and now he's working in the uh, set development, and he's created some bangers in the time, including my personal favorite, Ikoria, uh, and Kaldheim, and Hour of Devastation, and also Dominaria, which was a big popular set with some, although I'm not a big fan myself, but... Um, you can't say that it was not popular. So, I mean, he clearly knows what, what he's doing. Um, and the characteristic side of the sets that Dave Humphreys designed, at least in a couple of last years, is a different approach to how to build um, limited format. And difference is between intertwining themes within color versus isolated sub-themes. And I think that Crimson Vow was a good example of uh, isolated sub-theme set. We had cards that are fitting in one of the uh, color pairs, but not necessarily into the other. And we had cards like the wolf that get plus one, plus O and trample when you had control another wolf. That card was clearly built to be in um, green-red. Uh, we had, um, uh, let me think. Of course, now my, my brain is empty. I already forgot anything about um, a Crimson Vow. But, you know, some vampires cards were just very good in the vampire archetype, but not necessarily good in uh, anything else, like the 3-2 Trampler that created blood. Um, uh, and, and there was plenty of those cards. And there were very, very few cards that would be like glue pieces for multiple archetypes that people have to fight uh, for. Um, uh, and one example was Traveling Minister, which was good because it was live gain, aggressive, it could enable training, it fitted into every single white theme that you had in the set. Uh, but this was more of an exception than a rule. This set is completely different in the way, at least looking at the first, um, at the first um, views of the spoiler, because we obviously it would be much better if we had some play experience, but that's not possible. But there are many, many cards that fit into multiple um, archetypes at the same time. And I gave an example here of the Simeon Sling. Let me put on my trusty laser pointer. Uh, and Simeon Sling is uh, a creature 
but it's also an artifact. So uh, whenever the theme is artifacts, that thing plays some role. It can equip, so uh, it will make a creature that it equips modified. So it also fits into the modified theme. Um, it makes a thing bigger. So in the white red archetype, when you want to attack with only one creature, if it's bigger, then it pre presents a bigger threat. So it uh, warrants a block uh, earlier. So it also fits into that theme. And what are we missing? Well, it's still an artifact that you can sacrifice, uh, a very cheap one, which fits into the black-red sacrifice theme because, uh, well, it's it's quite e easy to sacrifice and uh, there are some ways of replaying things from the graveyard, which it also is easy because it's so cheap. So this card fits into all four archetypes quite readily. And it's not the only card like that in the whole, um, in the whole set. It's filled with cards that have either main roles in a particular archetype or can play as a solid role player that allows a particular um, particular subset of interactions in the, in, the, in the color pair that is not necessarily designed for. And because of that, I think there is going to be multiple flavors of each archetype um, um, within the set because they are all based on some spectrum. Like, for example, white-red, you can build the white-red um, more focused on white creatures and more focused on you know buffing the attack with the two ones that give the samurai that attacks alone plus one plus one um and with maybe the tappers or you can maybe build the samurai deck more uh, within slight artifact um uh, theme when you will have more of the simian slings when you might have the uh, the artifact uh, uh, resurrecting brother um and, and 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 move it slightly towards that uh, red spectrum. So um, I can see like several builds being feasible and being different in a way that you play them, not based on, um, you know, moving it from mid range uh, to more aggro to more control, but more moving it between uh, which sub themes in the set, uh, which sub modules, these pockets of synergies are more important in the particular build, and. This is the thing that I loved in uh, Ikoria. Ikoria was exactly a set like that, where you could uh, basically build your um, red, uh, blue as a sort of like discard uh, cycling uh, kind of theme, or you could build it as a sort of like aggro with um, with some spells uh, and card draw that uh, that allowed you to 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 win the tempo game based on which cards you selected for your deck and based on your personal preferences and. That's exactly what I loved about this set. And I think that this one is uh, following it in its footsteps uh, quite closely. So um, it's going to be fun to discover it because the thing with the Korea is that I played a bunch of it and I never went beyond the discovery phase. I think that in the Korea till the last days, I was still figuring out new archetypes that were super niche and maybe coming together only once, but if you can draft 40 different archetypes that only come together once, wow, that's a set that you want to draft forever and ever because you will never be bored because it will never become this chore that, all right, I'll just pick this price of loyalty. I'll just pick my sack uh, outlets and um, then I'll fill in with some creatures and whatever. It's going to be very much the same because all those pieces are interchangeable and I know I know the skeleton and I'm just going to put the cards together to to, to, to build it. Right. That concludes the preamble. Now, can we go in numbers? Now, this is a problem that I encountered is that we don't know exactly how the packs are going to look like. I did numbers and the numbers are slightly different in Kamigawa than it was in the previous uh, set, mainly because there is a different number of commons and, and different number of uncommons, which uh, changed the 
numbers ever so slightly. So because there is more commons uh, and you still have those, you know, 10 slots for a common card in, in the pack, um, you will only have uh, 2.24 of each common per pod rather than 240 that you had in Crimson Vow. And you also will have only um, 0.82 uncommons per pod rather than 0.87 because there is also few uncommons more uh, in this set than there were in the previous one. And uh, they decrease the number of rares and they decrease the number of mythics compared to um, Crimson Vow as well, which means that you will be more likely to open a copy of a particular rare in a particular pod. So that's also something to keep in mind. And there is a big question mark because there is a land slot and we don't know how they're going to arrange it in Arena. And I would think that it's going to be roughly the same as it is in paper, but um, we learned from Double Feature that they don't necessarily do things like they do in paper. And there's differences between Arena and the normal set. But what I would expect is that um, in the pack in paper, it's supposed to be one third of the packs have the special land. One third of the pack have just a normal basic land and one third of the packs will have the uh, dual land. So I assume they're probably going to make something like one third is a dual land and two thirds is a normal basic because of course they won't give us for free the special fun, fun, fancy lands. Looking forward and spending my gems to buy those. Um, what does it mean for the uh, dual lands? If it's going to be like I predicted, it's going to be roughly one third of this number in terms of copies per pod. So I would expect something like 0 0.7, 0 0.8 of each dual land per pod, uh, which means that they are going to be at the same kind of rarity as uncommons, even though they are a common. So um, keep that in mind that they are not a freebie. And if you see one, you probably want to prioritize it if there is nothing better in the pack. And if you, are, you already know that you want this particular color pair, or if you know that you want to splash something um, and you see the dual that will allow you to splash it cheaply without putting too many basics of the color that you're splashing. Right, that's the pack anatomy for us. Um, okay, so um, about the removal, I did it for the previous sets um, and I do it now. Um, there's basically four different types of damage removals in the set. I'm not counting the X spell because that's flexible and obviously you can play the X spell as you want uh, or as the mana allows you to. But uh, there is a couple of removals that target one drops. And looking at the per rarity, you have 27% of the common creatures are uh, uh, not one drops, but uh, fixed with one toughness. 27% uh, of the creatures at common uh, have toughness of one. Um, so, okay, because there is a question, um, is it is this Saga Backs? What counts here? Okay, I counted Saga Backs. Uh, I didn't count the vehicles. So it's all the creature plus the backs of the Sagas. Obviously, I'm not counting the X uh, creatures uh, because, well, they, they will be flexible. And obviously, uh, I don't count any count, uh, token generating uh, effects. So uh, when I say 27% of the common creatures are uh, with one toughness, I'm not counting things like the 1-1 one, one, uh, mana elf that, uh, that that is created as a token at instant speed. I don't count the pilots that, that are 1-1s one, and, and I don't count any additional um, uh, creature tokens that are one toughness, which is 
there's quite some few of them, so this number probably goes up a bit. But uh, at common, you have 27% of the uh, one toughness creature. At uncommon, it's 20%, and at rare, uh, it's 13%, which is not surprising. Rare creatures are usually bigger. Um, so uh, you will expect that they don't have toughness one that's so easily uh, dealt with. Um, when it comes to the two drops, we have 50% at uncommon and common of um, uh, creatures that will be killed by two damage spells. That does include the one uh, uh, toughness creatures as well. So like uh, together with the uh, X1s and X2s, you have 50% uh, of them at uh, common and uncommon. And around one third of the rares <clears throat> can be killed by, um, by, by dealing two damage to it. And obviously there's more cards that can do it than uh, Twin Shot Sniper. Um, I just put one card as an example of an effect that can deal a particular amount of damage. Um, <clears throat> so um, there is Kami's Flare, which deals three damage to any target, uh, a creature or planeswalker. Um, and that deals with 73% of commons and 73% of uncommons and uh, with 67% of rares. So quite a hefty number um, uh, of things that uh, Kami Slur can deal with. And uh, there is not really the expensive uh, red spell that we are so used to that deals four to five damage in this set. There we have Vol Voltage Surge, which can deal four if you sacrifice an artifact uh, while you play it. Um, And four damage will deal with roughly 90% of creatures at every single rarity. So um, it's pretty close to um, unconditional removal. There's still 10% of the creatures that it doesn't deal with. So Infinite Breakfast... Um, um, Hi, Eric. It says that Torment is also a good answer to Moonfolk, Puzzlemaker, and a few other one-power creatures, but that might not show up in the data. Yes, this card, we're going to touch on it uh, a bit later. This card has uh, multiple um, other um, uses that uh, that might be quite, uh, quite good. Um, apart from killing the creature right away, it can actually incapacitate a creature and, and, and make it a liability for the opponent. I think that especially the part uh, where it says that that creature cannot block uh, is, is pretty important because that means that you can well, get rid of a 2-2 two -two and make it into a 1-1 one -one that pings them for one every turn and you just don't need to be bothered with blocking it if, if they don't have a particular effects in their deck. Right, uh, what do we go next? Um, so I, this time I wanted to put it slightly into perspective because uh, I always sell, well, it kills whatever 27% of our commons uh, um, by dealing one damage, but how did it look like in previous sets? Um, <clears throat> so, for example, uh, one damage spells killed between 27%. So actually, Kamigawa has the most that's all on com common level, by the way. Uh, I only looked at the commons because they will be the bulk of creatures anyway. So uh, putting them together with rares is going to be slightly misleading. But at common level, um, one damage spell will kill 27% of, of the creatures. And this is the most that we've seen in the last six sets. Uh, and Kalheim was the least uh, with only 13% of the uh, common creatures 
being X1s. Uh, now we have 27%. So that, that's, a, that's a big shift between those two sets. Um, and with some implications as well. But um, in other sets, we had like between 20, 23, 26%. So this number is slightly higher, but not excessively higher than anything else uh, in the previous sets. Uh, when it comes to things that are killed by a two damage spell, um, it's exactly half this time. Maximum was a Midnight Hunt with 60%. And in Midnight Hunt, I'm counting only the day, day side of the creatures. And, um, you know, the fact that 60% um, uh, of the creatures were killed in Midnight Hunt with, by a two damage spell was a significant boost for things like uh, Olivia's Midnight uh, Ambush. Because, you know, the difference between, and we we're going to see it in a second, oh, well, talk about it in a second, the difference between uh, Olivia's Midnight Ambush and uh, Moonrager Slash that dealt three damage was uh, basically only 17 percentage points. So the only few creatures uh, were there uh, that had toughness three during the day. And of course, during the night, it doesn't matter because Olivia's Midnight Ambush killed everything. Um, but compared to the other sets, uh, Kamigawa looks exactly like uh, Crimson Vow, uh, Strixhaven, and Kaldheim at around 50%. And the outlier there was the AFR, which, um, which only 41% of the creatures had a power of two. Now, the important part that we see is this when we come, go to the three and four damage uh, range. In one damage killable oh, X1s and uh, X2s, we, we saw a large variance. So basically there was a 20% point difference between the most that the shock could kill and the least that the shock could kill. And there was a double uh, difference between uh, Kamigawa and Kaltheim in terms of number of X1s. When we go to the uh, th at th three and less toughness creatures, um, we don't see big differences already. So um, Kamigawa has pretty low at 73% of creatures that will be killed by um, uh, by a lightning bolt, but the maximum is 79. So the differences are, are quite small. And when we look at the four damage spells, um, it has 89% of creatures within that range. And um, the range is between 91% and 87%. So just like very small, which means that when wizards design sets for, uh, well, sets, I'm not saying that they do it for limited, but generally when they design sets, um, the main knob in terms of regulating what is the difference between sets in terms of toughness is variation between one toughness, two toughness, and three toughness creatures. But the sum of those one, two, and three toughness creatures at common will be around 75%. Uh, and that won't change. And the four damage, uh, four toughness uh, creatures will sort of equilibrate even further. And, you know, around 90% of the things will be uh, with four toughness and less. And then the, you, will, you will get this, you know, 10, 11% of um, uh, things that are bigger than, uh, than for toughness. So there is no much change in between those. The main difference is that, okay, one set had very few um, uh, one toughness creatures like uh, Kaltheim did, but it had a lot of two toughness creatures or um, um, AFR had uh, few uh, creatures with power two or less but it had a lot of creatures with power three. So that was the differences between those sets. And that's where they regulate uh, how good the conditional damage removal is in, in each set. Sibalist um, is asking, is it counting the Saga creatures? Yes, uh, I counted the Saga creatures because in the end they are suspend creatures. So there was no reason not to count them. 
Um, okay. Uh, and this is the sl slightly different comparison of the same data where I basically, this graph is cumulative. So it shows you the creatures with uh, power uh, toughness three or less. This one will only show you the number of creatures with toughness three. So here we see the same thing. And for one toughness, 27 uh, for uh, Kamigawa, 13 for Kaltheim and in between for the rest. Um, when we look at the Kamigawa Neon Dynasty, we see that it has one of the fewest um, two toughness creatures at common uh, from all the other sets. It's just 23%. The lowest one was uh, AFR with 18% and the highest was uh, Kaltheim with well, roughly 40% of the creatures at um, uh, two toughness. So um, that was something important. And, you know, this might be like a tell that uh, Kalheim had this super aggro archetype. So I don't assume that the super aggro archetype is going to exist here, especially since those like lots of those tutus are actually saga creatures that will not drop on the board uh, too early. Um, and when we look at the three toughness creatures, Kamigawa is sort of bang in the middle and here AFR was like uh, a big outlier with 34%. Uh, Kamigawa has 23 and um, the Midnight Hunt, which was the less, least uh, three toughness creature dense, uh, had 17% of them. So um, uh, yeah, Kamigawa is much higher than uh, Midnight Hunt, but definitely much lower than, uh, than AFR was. And four toughness creatures, roughly the same number. However, if you look at it, it's actually 16% of the four toughness uh, creatures in, in Kamigawa. So quite a lot of them. Um, most of the other sets, if only by a small amount. But that small amount, you know, is, is something that, uh, that might, might make a difference. It, for a comparison, Crimson Vow had only 11% of four toughness creatures. Now we have 16. Okay. Now, I showed you that... Uh, there is an abundance of the one toughness creatures, but numbers are not necessarily uh, everything in there. Um, so to put the removal in perspective, I would like you to maybe look very carefully at the, this card in the beginning, Seismic Wave. It's a one red, two colorless instant. It deals two damage to any target and one damage to each non-artifact creature target opponent controls. Now, key part is, don't fall into that uh, isn't the non-artifact part, so it won't kill quite a lot of those um, uh, X ones that are artifacts, like you know the monkey, the rabbit battery. Um, it won't touch those, but it still kills quite a large selection of um, uh, of good creatures. And here I put twelve of them um, um, uh, as an example. Uh, for example, well, as an example, for example. And of course, the card is called also Exemplar, just to make the example, example, exemplar, exemplar. Um, a Ganja Exemplar is a 2-1 that um, whenever a Samurai attacks, it gains plus one, plus one until end of turn. But it's just a 2-1. So this card will die from it just um, as an accident if you kill something with three toughness, for example, because you deal two damage to the thing with the, um, with the uh, three toughness and then it deals one on top of that uh, so it will kill it and it will kill the for example this uh, exemplar uh, moth rider patrol the one one flyer in white also dies from it spirited companion also dies from it now of course spirit companion already got the opponent a card when they played it but you don't lose a card for killing it with this card so um so you basically somewhat uh, ameliorate the fact that they got a card back from Companion because they don't get any value. 
Uh, Moon Circuit Hacker, that's the ninjutsu 2-1 that can draw a card when it gets ninjutsu, but it also dies from Seismic Wave. Gloom Shrieker, not only dies but gets exiled from, uh, from Seismic Wave. Pang of Shigeki, the 1-1 Death Toucher for 1 mana. Generous Visitor, I think that this is the card that's going to be a pain. And I think that in some situations people will not put counters on it because if they, well, it becomes a primary um, target for any kind of removal spell. So you want to put the counter somewhere else to hedge your bets, but because you put counters somewhere else, uh, Seismic Wave might ping something else and kill Gen Generous Visitor as a, as, a, as a side effect, which is quite positive for you. Uh, Orochi Merge Keeper, that's the 1-1 one, one, uh, mana, uh, mana dork and common. Uh, Born to Drive makes um, uh, two pilot tokens. They are not artifacts, so, uh, uh, so you can kill them also with the Seismic Wave while killing something else. And Goshintai also makes the one ones, the, Goshin, the white Goshintai, the white shrine makes one one uh, spirit creature tokens. So you can kill the shrine and remove all the tokens that it generated all, uh, across the board by using the seismic wave. Uh, there's also the careful cultivation, uh, that's the channel spell that can make the mana dork. And there is the Aki Ember Keeper, another thing that uh, it's a 2 1 that uh, whenever a modified creature you control dies, it makes a. Um, 1-1 one, one color spirit creature token. This also will kill it and all the token it generate if you kill something else with this spell. So I think that this is a spell that can kill quite a lot of very interesting and powerful creatures as a side effect, not as the main dish, as a sort of freebie that you get to roll, uh, roll on. So... Um, uh, uh, Texas Toast says that this card looks like it will be Green White's worst enemy. I think that uh, it might be pretty problematic for it because it does kill a lot of things that the Green White wants to, uh, you know, keep alive and for pretty cheap and, um, uh, and it can still nab something good or even if you don't have a good target for the actual uh, removal spell, you can deal two damage to any target. So actually the two damage can kill something that it's an artifact. Uh, or you can go to the face for two and then just kill three creatures that are X ones uh, if if the board uh, is like that. Okay, just um, you know, I think that this card might be way more powerful than it looks like, and uh, I don't think it gets too much hype. So I wanted to hype it up a bit because I think that um, it looks pretty solid, and it looks pretty solid not because of the it, but because of the things that it kills, by the way. So lots of those uh, small one toughness creatures are really powerful and 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 key for particular decks in in order for them to function properly. Okay, apart from the unconditional removal, we have also conditional removal, and I gave four examples here. One is the Bamboo Grove Archer, which is the two mana three three defender with reach. But for five mana, you can discard it and it can uh, nab a creature with flying. Now, this is not a flying set. There is not so many flyers and lots of them are just like one mana, one ones, which you probably don't want to kill for five mana. And if you need to kill them for five mana, you're in deep trouble. So it only kills 16% of common creatures and 13% of uncommons, but it does kill 33% of the rares and mythics. So if you play that card, I think that you should be actively wanting to play a 3-3 Defender Reach. And I think that there are decks that actively want to play a card like that. 
And then if you draw it later in the game, it can actually be your um, insurance policy against one of those, you know, dragon bombs that uh, at least you can kill the first half and then deal with the second part of their um, ability. You're probably not favored when someone drops uh, AO or whatever uh, other uh, uh, mythic dragon, but, um, but, you know, keeping that as a security might help. That's a, th a third of the rares have flying, so yeah, something to look forward. Um, another card is the Ripple the Vile. Uh, that's a four mana instant, and you choose one. Exile target creature with power four or greater, um, or exile target enchantment. And this exile target enchantment clause would be maybe boring in most sets, but in this one it's not. Um, it's roughly 27% of the creatures that are uh, enchantment creatures. So uh, combining that with the creatures with power four or greater, um, it gives you that it kills 40% of the creatures at common and 40% of the creatures at uncommon and roughly half of the rares and mythics. So, um, so probably it's playable in some decks and it's definitely a decent sideboard card when you see that the deck has multiple creatures with power four or greater or some tricks that increase um, uh, power of creatures, uh, it might be pretty good. And uh, someone in chat said exile is not an empty trinket text here. Because it avoids all the, all the for example, the dragon um, die, um, triggers uh, don't work with it. Yeah, very well observed. Um, Next conditional removal I want to talk about is the fall of the of Lord Conda. I'm pretty sure that this one is going to be underestimated, at least in the beginning, because it doesn't look spectacular. Because we have a saga for three mana, one white of, um, of it. Uh, chapter one is exile target creature and opponent controls with mana value four or greater. Chapter two is nothing really. Each player gains control of all permanents they own. Um, and chapter three is exile the saga and then return to the battlefield transformed and it becomes a 1-3 defender when it dies draw a card. But I think that this card is not terrible because every deck that you're going to be facing, almost every deck, I'm pretty sure 99% of the decks you're going to play against do have some top end. Four mana is not like insane in terms of uh, uh, not expecting to see them. Um, and this is for mana, not for toughness, not for power. So uh, any kind of four mana creature will be killed by that. And at the end of the long process, you get the one three that you can block. And if you block, then you gain life. And if you block and it dies, you draw a card. So worst case scenario, you block a two two three times, and that's like gaining six life. Um, or you can block a two two, then next turn chump and draw a card and uh, accrue. So I think that this card is sort of comparable to reverse foul play from uh, Midnight Hunt. Foul play killed a creature with power two or less and you got a clue token. And here you kill a creature that costs four or more. Um, and in the end, instead of clue token, you get this wall that might draw your card in the end. And you know, if you have ways of sacrificing it even better because you can get the card much easier like that. And the last conditional removal I wanted to talk is the fade into antiquity. Uh, that's three mana sorcery, exile target, artifact, or enchantment. And I told you, there is roughly 27% uh, of 
enchantment creature and it's very similar number when it comes to artifact creatures and i'm not counting the non-creature artifacts and non-creature enchantments that you can also nab with it uh, so in the end when you look at the numbers it kills roughly two-thirds of the common creatures and roughly two-thirds of the uncommon creatures which is quite a sizable number i mean when we compare it uh, this is a similar similar not exactly as high but similar number to uh kami's flare for one more mana and definitely less fighting over that spell at least in the beginning of the format um and uh, as a positive it can kill some really big things as well because there are some really big um enchantment and artifact creatures which uh, um, the kami uh, removal won't do because it will only kill uh, things with toughness three or less so i think that this card is probably playable as one copy in a deck uh, based on those numbers it will require some testing but i think it's you know i'm quite optimistic that you can play one without without fear of of being um blown out because you know red and blue really do care about the artifacts and green and white does uh, care about um uh, enchantments uh, so that's one thing and black sort of cares about both because there's plenty of cars that have synergies when you control both the artifact and enchantment so there it actually even though those um, uh, this color is the least focused on either of the main themes it tries to have both which is always difficult so uh, actually fades into antiquity might be the most disruptive against that particular deck because you know if they have two enchantments and one artifact you can nab the artifact if they have two artifacts and one enchantment you can nab the enchantment and all their payoffs uh, become slightly worse so yeah don't sleep on fade into antiquity i think it might be pretty decent uh and just some permanent stats just to follow up on the um artifacts and enchantments we have 26 artifacts non-creature artifacts in the set 44 artifact creatures 66 creatures that are neither artifact or enchantment 46 enchantment creatures that does include the sagas which will turn into enchantment creatures and 20 enchantments that are either auras or just like global enchantments um, that uh, don't need to uh, enchant anything but are not creatures so um, these are the numbers we're talking so when we're talking about um, uh, fade into antiquity it has uh, what is that 70 and 66 136 targets of the set so basically half of the set already and that you know of course bunch of the things in the set are spells that are not counted in that so uh, that's quite quite a large uh, chunk of the permanent spells are, are targeted with the uh, fate into antiquity now um i already said that in one of the previous um seminars but mark rosewaters mentioned that the current strategy of designing limited sets is that there are five supported archetypes and five less supported or not supported or supported in minimal way. Um, and now Stephen Jay Gold, the very famous evolutionary biologist from, well, let's say 30, 40 years ago, uh, came up with this beautiful theory of spandrels. And I think that uh, um, the spandrels theory is uh, describing the design uh, um, plans for WotC quite well. Spandrels are basically if you have a dome in a church or some kind of like a nave that has semicircular uh, building, you build the construction to support it. 
And because you build it to support, because how, uh, how the design is working, there will be some spaces that are there, but they were not designed. They just have to be there because it has to have a shape. And I think that some of the archetypes in, uh, in the current formats are going to be spandrels. So basically they were not planned to be an archetype and they are the result of how the other um, supported archetypes are looking at. So when we, for example, think at the white black, which I think will be uh, probably the one of the non-supported archetypes. They basically thought, okay, we have white with um, uh, with enchantments. The black black has leeching of some enchantments and some uh, artifacts. Uh, so why not making a signpost uncommon that cares about both types? And then they introduced in the design process a couple of cards that uh, have this synergy when you have both artifacts and enchantment, but you didn't like planned it. You had, you had those main five archetypes uh, planned and, and this one was a sort of an afterthought or like they end up with making the blue and white and say, well, what do we do with blue and white? Well, I guess we, we have some vehicles, so let's make a couple of more vehicles in white and blue and let's make a signpost and common that is also a, a vehicle one and, and it will become an archetype. But, you know, I mean, we're not planning to like make it a main theme of the set. The main theme of the set is enchantments and artifacts. Um, uh, and ninjas and samurais. That's basically our two main um, uh, thoughts. So I don't know exactly how they designed it because they, they I don't think that they, they describe which ones are the five supported and which ones are five not supported. And I don't know how much Mark Rosewater was inventing the story of the five being supported and five not. But I looked at the archetypes and I came up that the supported ones will be the ninjas and samurais because these are the tribal supported archetypes that really required some like large uh, chunks of the uh, set being designed around them. I think that the supported ones are the white, green and blue, red, the artifact and enchantment themes because the balance of the cards uh, in those colors is built in a way that they will be the most supported. And I really couldn't figure out which one is the fifth one. And I think that it's blue, green, the uh, sort of channel and uh, and the sort of like opposites meet, the most artifacty color and the most enchantmenty color meet together in this channel kind of amalgam. And um, uh, I think that it's sort of supported because of the number of ramp cards that were put into it. It's very mana hungry and they put the tools for it to be supported, but I'm not sure of that. It might be that black red is the uh, other mo more supported one. Maybe the modified archetype is the more supported one. I'm pretty sure that black, green, white, blue, and white, black are the ones that are afterthoughts. And um, I'm not exactly sure which which three of those uh, red, green, black, red, and uh, blue, green are the afterthoughts and which ones are the main themes. So it's going to be interesting to see. Um, they didn't announce it before Midnight Hunt and Crimson Vow. However, people drafted it according to the design. So at least in that aspect, both sets were a success. The five supported archetypes were the most drafted ones and the uh, five non-supported archetypes were the least drafted ones. So um, it clearly works in a way that uh, the amount of support you put in the set makes people draft them more frequently. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how is it going to work in this one. And with that, I'm going to go through the archetypes very briefly. And I'm going to put obviously a bit more into the archetypes that I think are supported. So we start with the first one. That's the motorcycle emptiness. 
from the Manic Street Preachers song that was in the title of the seminar, because I think that this archetype is very unsupported. And uh, who knows, maybe it will become pretty good, uh, but I have my doubts. Though the signpost uncommon is Prodigy prototype, uh, free mana, one white blue. Uh, whenever one, it's an artifact vehicle. Whenever one or more vehicles you control attack, create a one-one colorless pilot creature token with this creature cruise vehicles as though its power were two greater. So for the purpose of crewing, this one-one is a three-one, um, and it has crew two, and it's a three-four. So uh, yeah, it's a solid card. Don't get me wrong. It's just like I think it's a solid card um, um, that uh, is not very well supported i mean there are obviously some vehicles and there is born to drive which i think is a good card for the archetype in general but it also will be good for some other archetypes it's um, a three mana aura enchant artifact or creature as long as enchanted permanent is a creature it gets plus one plus one for each creature and or vehicle you control so like sort of if you can go wide this can become like massive like plus plus seven plus seven um, but it has a channel option, which is for three mana, you discard it and you create two one one pilots with the same ability that they are three ones when they crew things. So if you have several um, vehicles, you can cycle board to drive and you have two pilots to crew your vehicles and uh, yeah, uh, it can help it. And if you have already everything that you need, you can dump it on something big and then and, and start smashing for, uh, for, for large chunks of damage. Um, so yeah, I think that this card is going to be pretty important if you want to dra uh, draft the archetype, you probably want both the Prodigy's prototype and Born to Drive. Um, other cards that uh, I think are good in that, it's Dragonfly Suit, that's a three mana crew one, three two flying vehicle, and Spirited Companion, which is an enchantment, but it's a one one for two mana that draws you a card. And as a one one, it crews very well those three two flyers, for example. Uh, so um, I would be quite happy to, to to put those like turn two, turn three, and then I can start using the good boy that drew me a card to 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 crew, like a dog in a dragonfly suit. Come on, it must be good. Um, then a couple of other cards, uh, network disruptor. I put it in because I think again you want to probably be quite heavier on those crew one vehicles because. That's how you gain advantage by having vehicles, by crewing them for cheaps. And, and this card is just good. Can ping for three when it enters the battlefield for a couple of attacks. Um, and then um, it can um, it can sort of um, start crewing those uh, crew one things. Uh, this is an interesting one. That, well, interesting. The, the one that at least uh, got my attention, Acquisition Octopus, which I think works very well with um, with uh, vehicles because you can crew with Acquisition Octopus. So you tap it. After you tapped it, you reconfigure. So basically you equip the vehicle that you crewed with it. Uh, and it gives curiosity to the thing that uh, you crewed. Um, then you uh, attack with the crewed vehicle. Um, and if they block, they block. If, if they don't block, you drew an extra card. And at the end of the turn, when the vehicle turns back into, um, uh, into an artifact, it falls off of it, so you can repeat the same process next turn. So you basically get a free um, uh, disattaching of, of the, of the uh, octopus, so you can use it for crewing again, basically. So uh, yeah, that's how I see it. And I think that's a pretty, pretty useful um, 
pretty useful ability. And I think Moonsnare Specialist is pretty okay in this deck because you can play just for as a four four uh, as a four mana two two mana war and instantly crew something and attack and and you could remove the uh, favorable blocker. So um, so you get the value from that like that. But in general, I'm not like super stoked about the uh, blue white. I'm probably going to draft it at some stage and I'm probably going to have a fun deck because vehicles are just fun. I just think that it will be not something that will easily come together. Of course, without playing, we don't know. Maybe it's going to be busted. We just don't see how. Okay. Um, next archetype is white black and that's the uh, having both artifacts and enchantments in your same deck uh, um, thing. So uh, signpost is Naomi, Pillar of Order, 5 mana, 4-4, four, four, uh, 3 white-black. Whenever it enters the battlefield or attacks, if you control both an artifact and an enchantment, create a 2-2 two, two white samurai creature token with vigilance. So you want to play it as a sort of 5 mana, 6-6 six, six, and 2 bodies. For that, you need to do some preparation. And cards that I looked for in this... Uh, Archetype. First of all, Sandblade Samurai. I think that this card is just very, very good. It's an enchantment for five mana. Enchantment creature, it's four, four. It has vigilance. Four, four with vigilance uh, for five mana is pretty good. Um, and it has channel two. Discard it. Uh, search your library for a planes card. Reveal it. Put it into your hand. And then shuffle. You gain two life. I think that the big problem of this deck is going to be running out of the cards while you try to play some kind of attrition game. So, um, uh, so yeah. Uh, you might want to uh, get your lands, and if not, then you play it and you have an enchantment on board, which gives you all those enchantment artifact synergies that you can get your hands on. There's not so many of them and they're not super impressive. I think Naomi can be good, but it's like jumping a lot of hoops to get like a decent effect. Uh, uh, we have Intercessor's uh, Arrest. Um, that's the Rest basically, um, three mana aura, enchant permanent, it can't attack block, crew vehicles, activated abilities can be activated unless they're mana abilities. Um, so this is a good one because uh, you put it on something and unless the opponent is into sacrificing stuff, uh, it just sits there so we have always this enchantment on board. That's why it's so nice in this uh, archetype, I think, because you know you want some enchantments to stay on board and, and then be there. Good doggo, so it's good because that's your draw engine for the deck and it's an enchantment that gives you sort of extra value. If you have a couple of enchantments playing, this is the third one, means that you're more guaranteed to, um, uh, to have this enchantment when you want to have. Uh, Procobrito says, I would include the five mana three to artifact that searches for enchantment, one card that enables both. I think it's a good point, it's a very good point. It's a 5-mana 3-2 that can look for an aura or a shrine uh, when it ETBs. So you can, if you have several aura or some shrines, uh, it's a very good addition to that deck because it itself is an artifact. It is pretty expensive though. Is it Saga or Aura? No, Shrine, 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 Shrine or Aura. Okay, so uh, there is not many artifacts in white. There is the vehicle and there is another vehicle at Uncommon. That's about it, isn't it? So, uh, so the problem with this archetype is that you either have colorless artifacts or you need to lean on the black ones. 
Um, and there's a couple of decent black artifacts. Uh, one of them is the Leech Gauntlet, two mana, two, two with lifelink, which is always great. Um, and for four mana, you can equip it and uh, it becomes an equipment. Um, oh yeah, Samurai Sword is the third one. Yes, yes, but it doesn't fit very well into that archetype as Meadow said. Um, you can equip it for four and the equipped creature has lifelink. Uh, so uh, I guess that is just a good card and it's an artifact. So I would definitely be happy to draft as many of those as I can in, in, this, uh, in this deck. Unfortunately, it's an uncommon, so you won't get them very often. And the other one is Virus Beetle, which is a 2-mana 1-1. One, one. Um, when it enters the battlefield, each opponent discards a card. So it's Revenous Rats, black, but somehow an artifact at the same time. And I think that, you know, this is, a, this is the same case for the Spirited Companion and Virus Beetle. They are basically the two sides of the same coin. Uh, one draws a card, one makes uh, forces opponent to discard, and both of them uh, enable those synergies um, uh, and... Probably a thing that opponent will not want to waste removal on, so they might sit there and wait and for your um, for your uh, artifact and enchantment synergies to uh, pop out. And one card again that I think might be might be interesting if you really are um, uh, having problem with those uh, artifact synergies is the Ecologist Terrarium. Because you can play it for two mana, it enters the battlefield, you may search your library for a basic land card, uh, reveal it and put it in your hand and shuffle. So basically, it searches for a land, and then you can pay two and sacrifice it to put a plus one plus one counter on target creature. Uh, but you don't have to. So you can keep it on board and wait for the moment when you actually have, you know, big impact for using it, but you don't need to hurry it and it just sits there as an artifact on board uh, waiting, and I think that this deck might be, you know, moderately mana hungry. So um, getting extra land is 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 a, is a decent deal. So I think that this might be like sort of insurance policy of having that artifact on board rather than risking it with creatures that can be killed and and and, and ruin your uh, uh, synergy piece. But again, I still think that this uh, archetype is also not the most supported one. And um, as I said, I'm probably gonna play it at some stage, but. Um, I'm not necessarily going to be thrilled to. Yes, the Doggo and the Beetle are the best mates on the opposite sides of the spectrum. Right. So, we go to the uh, Neon Loneliness. We had the Motorcycle Emptiness from the uh, Vehicle deck. That was quite empty. Here we have the Neon Loneliness because you attack alone in the Samurai archetype. The White-Red Samurais and warriors, you control attacks alone, you get some kind of a bonus. And uh, the signpost is a 5 mana, uh, 3 red, white uh, uh, haste creature. It's a 4-3, and whenever a samurai or warrior you control attacks alone, it gets plus 1, plus 0 until end of turn for each samurai or warrior you control. And this is going to be a very interesting deck. I really want to see how it plays. Um, because it's not obvious, because we are used to the very aggressive Boros decks, and I'm pretty sure that this was this one's going to cover like a like a whole spectrum of stuff. Because you can do it like multiple Aganju exemplars, uh, the two ones that um, give plus one plus one to each samurai to two samurai or warrior when they attack alone. So you can curve out like this into this, or into maybe a three drop that taps the creature when the samurai attacks alone, and then attack for three tap something play another of these, attack for five, 
uh, top something and, 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 and quickly accrue value like this. Or you can build it like slowly, more grindy. Uh, or you can build the version that has the Moth Rider Patrol, that, uh, the 1-1 one, one flyer that is a warrior, actually. Uh, so Samurai or Warrior fulfills those values. And then you basically like clog the board downstairs and, 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 and ping with this uh, Moth Rider Patrol getting some value. Um, so one card that I think is pretty interesting for this archetype is the Seven Tail Mentor. I'm not sure this is going to play out well, but uh, it looks like it has some potential because if you attack with only one creature, you either want to blow your opponent out with tricks or something or, or, or just making the creature super big, or you want to disencourage them from blocking. Now, Seven Tail Mentor, when it enters the battlefield, put a plus one, plus one counter target creature or vehicle you control. But when it dies, you also put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature or vehicle you control. So basically, it's a samurai. So you play it, you can put a plus one, plus one counter on something, swing with it. Well, if they don't kill it, you can repeat the process. But if they do kill the thing that uh, you attacked with, you can start sending the Seven Tail Mentor, the samurai, uh, in. And then they have a sneaky choice. They block it, they chump it, or they try to kill it, and then you get a plus one, plus one counter on something else. So I think that's a neat um, card in terms of fitting towards the synergy. Uh, I think that this, this encouragement from blocking that it creates is, is, a, is an interesting uh, thing uh, to put in your deck because you want to have your opponent being un uncomfortable, and this definitely makes it. Um, I think very interesting thing is Heiko Yamazaki, but I'm going to talk about it in more detail because this is one of the supported archetypes, so I have extra extra speculation there. Um, I think that an interesting card is also the Scrapyard Steelbreaker because it's a human warrior for four mana. It's an artifact creature, and you can sacrifice another artifact. It gets plus two, plus one until end of turn. So this thing can become huge very quickly, um, and it's a, it's a warrior, so it can attack alone while threatening to be really huge, which makes it really, really awkward to be blocked. Uh, but also at some stage of the game, especially if you are going to draft the samurai deck that leans a bit more on those artifact synergies, uh, it can become a must block while being uncomfortable in blocking. And with some effects, I, th I think that, you know, the three, two that... Um, whenever Samurai at Exelon taps a creature can become a real pain in the ass in this format. So uh, uh, I didn't put the card in, in here because lots of people talked about it already and I wanted to maybe focus on less obvious synergies. But I think that the 3-2 might be really good if you build a particular deck that, that can actually you know gain a lot. The thing with the Samurai archetype is normally Boros goes like headlong uh, without looking at anything and just races fiercely this deck doesn't need to race it only wants to attack with one creature which means that every other creature that you have is a potential blocker and some of them will be blockers where you don't want to really block because they have like a particular effect that they give on the attacks but some creatures will be just very good as a blocker and uh, peerless samurai i think is one of those it's a two three four three mana it has menace so at some stage when it attacks, it becomes problematic because you need to put two creatures in front of it and you don't always uh, can afford that. Um, but even as a blocker, 2-3 is a good body. Uh, and when uh, another Samurai or Warrior, or when, whenever any Samurai or Warrior uh, you control attacks alone, next spell you cast this turn costs one less, so it sort of can act as a mana dork as well uh, at the same time. I think it's an interesting card uh, um, with the 
you know, any single one of those things, like a two, three, not super interesting, is only, not super interesting, Mana Dork only, not super interesting, but as a package, I think it's a pretty decent card and it's gonna be interesting to see how it works. Now, for each supported archetype, I included many mini combo, many interaction that maybe we can think about. And for this one, I chose, I don't know how people are on Ninja's Kunai, but Haiko Yamazaki the General is a four mana three three with trample. Whenever a samurai or warrior you control attacks alone, you may cast target artifact um, uh, card from your graveyard this turn. So Ninja's Kunai is a one mana artifact. So for example, if you have Peerless Samurai, you attack with your Samurai. If it's in the graveyard, you can cast it for zero, basically. So freebie, thank you very much. And it's an equipment that has equipment. Wow. Yeah, Kunai goes face. I will get to that. But you equip it for one uh, on any creature. You attack only with one. So you should have some creatures that you can equip it with. And the equipped creature has one tap. You sacrifice Ninja's Kunai. Ninja's Kunai deals three damage to any target. So it can kill something with free toughness for three mana and tapping a creature, really. Or maybe if you control the Peerless Samurai for two mana and tapping a creature. Or it can go face for three damage so uh, for two mana in a reproducible way. Because next turn, you still have the Haiko Yamazaki. You attack with another Samurai. You bring back the Kunai. You maybe kill another potential blocker or potential attacker. Or you go face. So I think that this is... A pretty, pretty good combo when you have the Samurai deck, especially because you don't have to attack with everything because you um, you only want to attack with um, uh, with one creature. So you have plenty of targets that you can equip it. Yeah, no, it does seem strong. I was, I was quite proud of myself discovering this interaction. Um, so yeah, this is my spe sp special brew to look forward. Um, um, uh, and I think once you get Haiko Yamazaki, I'm, I'm pretty sure that in every draft you there will be a Ninja's Kunai uh, doing circles. Okay. So let's go to the next archetype. And this time we have um, White Green, uh, which is the enchantment. That's the theme. That's basically it. The signpost uncommon is a two mana green white, uh, but, but two mana costing, so one green, one white uh, uh, enchantment creature, lifelink, two, two. Enchantment spells you cast cost one less to cast. And um, okay, I, I wanted to uh, show a couple of things in that um, archetype. Like, first of all, I think Golden Tail, this disciple, is particularly good in this one because it's an enchantment uh, for three mana, lifelink, two, three. And this lets you go into the longer game. It's a good blocker. It can, you know, get the bonuses that you get from casting uh, enchantments. It can uh, be cheaper with the Jukai Naturalist. Um, so I think like a solid package. Uh, and it, you know, it's not a samurai or a warrior, so it won't fit into the white thread. Um, it might be, you know, nabbed by the uh, black white because they, they might also want to play that card. But but generally, you should have a slightly more accessibility of a creature that I think is pretty decent in this format. Uh, second thing is quite obvious, the Sky Blessed Samurai, it's a 7 mana 4-4 four, four flying creature, but it costs 1 less to cast for each enchantment you control. Uh, so I'm pretty sure that you can play it relatively cheaply in this deck. Um, next thing I wanted to look at is the uh, Shrines. 
And I think that um, I, I, I put the white shrine, but green one is also good. And I think that uh, with Greater Tanuki, another card uh, that is pretty good in this deck, in my opinion, you can you can splash a couple of shrines for, for low, relatively low cost. Greater Tanuki is one of my favorites before the set is released. Uh, so it's a 6 mana, 6-5 six, with Trample, uh, but it has a channel ability, discard it, and search your library for a basic land, put it onto the battlefield tapped, and then shuffle. So it ramps you uh, while being a big creature. That's why I think that you know, normally you don't want to play too many of the six drops, but I think with Greater Tanuki you can play literally any number because uh, if you have seven, you channel the first two and then and then you can just start slamming the other five. So uh, no problem with that. And they don't only ramp you, but they also fix you because it's any basic land. So um, 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 uh, yeah, I, I, I do like it. Um, other card that I like in this archetype is the Generous Visitor. Um, that's for maybe more aggressive version. Uh, it's basically one mana, one, one. When you cast an enchantment spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature. Um, so I would see something like a curve out of Generous Visitor into maybe a two, two Bushido guy. And then on turn three, you start slamming enchantments and making the Bushido guy bigger. Uh, you either can keep it back to block or start attacking with it and, uh, quickly take over the game. Uh, because it will grow quite quickly and Bushido is a good ability. You you know, you will learn it very quickly if you never play with Bushido that it is very annoying and it sort of ruins your combat math every single time. And the last one, an example of the auras, but I think that um, this one is pretty good in uh, in this deck because problem with it, it doesn't have that much of card draw. And uh, Bosaju reaches Skyward is four mana saga and the first chapter search your library for up to two basic forest cards reveal them and put them into your hand and shuffle so it sort of filters out the lands from the deck so maybe you can draw more gas uh, over the next game uh, and it's sort of from four brings you naturally to six mana which with greater tanuki is something you want to do um, then second chapter is put up to one target land card from your graveyard on top of your library which is something you probably don't want to do um, and third chapter is uh, it makes a xx creature with reach, where X is the number of lands you control. So, um, so uh, Isaiah is getting excited about cycling uh, uh, Tanuki and, um, and, and, and using the reanimator spell. Uh, this is one of the combos that I didn't look into in that particular configuration, but I have something similar um, uh, to look at later in the uh, seminar when I'm giving my random takes. Uh, okay. Um, so I didn't go for the reanimator spell, but I went for uh, the combination between Greater Tanuki ramping you as a channel spell. And <laughs> I put the wrong card here. I, you know what? Before I started making this uh, seminar, I instantly thought, I'm going to mix up those two cards so badly. One of them is Storyweave, the three mana instant. Choose one, put two plus one plus one counters on target creature you control, or put two lore counters on target saga you control. The next time one or more enchantment creatures enter the battlefield under your control this turn, each enters with two additional plus one plus one counters on it. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I said, oh, they, they, have, they have the same artist making an art. The art is very similar. I'm going to mix them up. 
guess what? I mixed them up in the presentation. Obviously, this is supposed to be a season of renewal, the um, return target creature and return target enchantment from your graveyard to your hand. Um, because I think that, you know, if you can channel out the greater Tanuki, ramp yourself a bit, maybe you have some other channel creatures, maybe you lost some Juice Guy naturalists early in the game, you can easily uh, play the Season of Renewal to return both of them, and you ramp yourself closer to actually being able to play the greater Tanuki onto the uh, battlefield. So I think Story Weave, uh, no, Story Weave, uh, <laughs> Season of Renewal is a pretty interesting card to... Um, 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 well, to basically um, sort of uh, start looping and 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 uh, and after stabilize it. Um, okay. Um, so yeah, this is my combination. Obviously, with the wrong card in the presentation, but you get the point. I mean, uh, I think that channel and uh, and 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 uh, season of renewal uh, are are a, are a match made in heaven. Okay. Another supported archetype, and that's the ninjas. Uh, the uh, signpost uncommon is Silver Fair Master, uh, a rat ninja. I think that trope appeared somewhere, but I'm not exactly sure where. Uh, it has ninjutsu, and ninjutsu is an ability where you can pay the ninjutsu cost, return an unblocked attacker um, to your hand, um, and put the ninjutsu creature tapped and attacking. And usually ninjutsu creatures do have some kind of ability when they enter the battlefield or when they connect. So um, you get some kind of a, or they get a cost discount or something like that. Um, but Silver Fair Master has none of those. It does make all the other ninjutsu abilities uh, you activate cost one less to activate. And it makes other ninjas and rogues get plus one plus one permanently. So it doesn't have any ATB uh, effect, but if you have mainly rogues and ninjas in your deck, if you attack uh, with um, unfavorably and people make right blocks and you drop the silver fair master and the ninjutsu, uh, they become bigger and obviously uh, can turn the uh, combat math completely uh, upside down. But you know, it's perfectly playable as a two drop uh, and just to make your future ninjutsu uh, uh, slightly more complicated. So I think that, you know, the main card and everyone is telling about it, but I will hammer that message through the main, the most important card in this archetype is this network disruptor, the one mana uh, flying man. It's a one mana flying one one. Uh, when it enters the battlefield, you can tap target permanent. Um, it's so good because lots of the ninjutsu abilities cost two. So you play it on turn one, you attack on turn two, you ninjutsu something bigger, return it to your hand. Like, look at this order. You play this on turn one, on turn two you attack with it, there's probably no blockers for a 1-1 one, one flyer because there's not so many flyers in the uh, in the format. So it's unblocked, you ninja in a 3-2 lifelinker that costs 2 mana, so you hit them for 3, you gain 3 life, you return the network disruptor into your hand, next turn they play a creature, you replay network disruptor, tap their blocker, attack with the 3-2 flyer, boom. That was already a 12 life swing by the turn three. And you still have two mana to play with. So, uh, yeah, I think, um, um, I think that's, um, you know, that's, that's a super interesting. Yeah. Oh yeah. Worth noting that it's a rogue. So the master, uh, the unidentified and definitely not, uh, related to turtles, uh, uh, rat ninja master 
also pump network disruptor. Uh, another card that I think is important is the Moon Circuit Hacker. That's a two mana, two one with Ninjutsu one. Whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you may draw a card. If you do discard a card, unless it entered the battlefield this turn, which is quite important. And we're going to talk about them in a second. Uh, so um, with ninjas, you want to attack because you want to activate your ninjutsu. The problem with attacking is that you have two attackers, they have a blocker, so you might need to make chump attacks. And that's, I think, why uh, suit up the three mana combat trick until end of turn target creature or vehicle becomes an artifact creature with a base power and toughness four five and you draw a card is going to be pretty decent in this deck. Because you attack them, they expect that you want to activate your ninjutsu abilities. Bam, suit up. I eat your big thing and uh, draw a card and uh, you're left with your pants down because you thought that I'm just chump attacking because I wanted to ninjutsu something in. So I think that it might be, you know, it's not going to be a star of the deck, but I think it's going to be pretty solid because the draw a card on it, it makes a world of a difference between this and the... Um, Serpent, whatever, from uh, from Crimson Bow. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that uh, this is something at least to keep in mind. Uh, Clawing Torment, we discussed this card earlier, so it was mentioned as uh, one of the things that can kill one toughness creature, but it also makes the creature not being able to block. Now, this is very good with ninjas, because obviously unblocked, ninjas, uh, unblocked creatures can turn into something, um, uh, uh, into something really annoying. Uh, so I would think that this card is actually way better than um, uh, what was the thing in Kaldheim, which is Wither Crown. Um, also because opponent doesn't have an option to sacrifice it. If you play it on the 2-2, it turns it into a 1-1. You can take forever and it still pings them uh, for one every turn. Uh, especially if they don't have any ninjas that, that can return the creature back to their hand. Um, it's useless as a blocker, so they would probably rather attack, but you have to... If you happen to play it on the defender creature, now that's just, that's just awful for the opponent. I think that if this card is good, then the 3-3, three, three, uh, 2-mana 3-3 three, three, um, defender creature is just terrible, because you can get stuck in games when the opponent just sits back and enjoys while your uh, life total drops down to zero, because you, you have this thing. Um... The Kuchi Shadow Walker, that's a 6 mana 5-5, five, five, but it has ninjutsu of 4. So, um, you know, I can probably imagine some curveouts with Network Disruptor turn 1, Rat on turn 2, and turn 3 attack with Network Disruptor and change it into a 5-5, five, five, and it becomes problematic if you were on the play for the opponent to deal with the 5-5 five, five so early. Yeah, I, I think that um, uh, that's the strategy. Isaiah says that if they ninja, it could feel bad, but there are lots of X1s in ninja, so probably still good in the mirror. Oh, yeah, 6-6. Six, six. Yeah, sorry, sorry, because, of course, the uh, uh, rat ninja gives plus one, plus one to the ogre ninja. I don't know if ogres can be stealthy enough to be ninjas, but turns out they can. Um, so, yeah, the Clawing Torment in the mirror matchup can be used just to kill things. You just want to kill the 1-1 one, one flyer. You just want to kill the 2-1 uh, moon, moon Circuit Hacker. Uh, there is a 3-1 uh, also that gives uh, Lifeling and Death Touch um, that you can kill with it. So there's plenty of things that you can kill. So you don't give them the opportunity of bouncing the the, um, uh, the card with Ninjutsu and, 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 and removing Clawing Torment. 
Oh, I didn't know that. So the Coochie Shadow Walker's nickname is allegedly Juzum Ginger. Gin, Juzum Ginger. Yeah, yeah, nice one. Uh, and the last card I wanted to draw attention to is Inkrise Infiltrator. Uh, that's the two mana, one two flyer that can in the late game become quite big because for four mana I can pump it uh, uh, by plus two plus two until end of turn. Um, and I think that, you know, you will not always get a bunch of network disruptors and this is like your silver medal in this uh, particular deck because, you know, two mana flyer, maybe not as good as a one mana flyer, but it has some potential in the late game and it gives off slight vibes of the, uh, was it fend something from uh, from Strixhaven, the two, three flyer that drained for, uh, for two, for, 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 for six mana. This one is cheaper and doesn't gain you life. But you're more tempo oriented, so you're quite happy to uh, to deal more damage just to, you know the last last couple of points, for example. And um, my special uh, my special synergy for this this deck is, you know, ninjutsu is a tricky ability in that you can use a multiple player in the same uh, uh, in the same um, turn, and this is something that I think might be pretty useful combining and enter the battlefield effect with the uh, deals combat damage effect. So, you can imagine, Moon Circuit Hacker is good when it uh, hits the player on the turn it entered the battlefield. Um, and later, looting is not as good as drawing a card, though, so it becomes much less. And also, the 2-1 is probably not going to go through. So, if you have, like, opening when you put Moon Circuit Hacker onto the battlefield, you maybe have some evasive threat or maybe two creatures, they have one blocker. You attack with the Moon Circuit Hacker. Um, they block it. The other creature is not blocked. You can play Moonsner Specialist, bounce back your own Moon Circuit Hacker, replace it. So Ninjutsu, the Specialist that you just play uh, ninjutsu in with the Moon Circuit Hacker, because this one costs only one mana, so it's like super, uh, super cheap. And draw another card because it will deal damage and it will enter the battlefield this turn. And you can do it in many configurations, but I think that uh, playing Moonsner Specialist and replacing it with Moon Circle Hacker or any other ninja that uh, gives an ETB effect is going to be quite interesting. And you basically reload on the Moonsner Specialist because it comes back to your hand and you can replay it. Um, it, it may be too cute, but um, oh, uh, I think there is a ninja build that uses papercraft decoy with covert technician to loop cards. Well, maybe that's an interesting one. That uh, uh, papercraft decoy is a two mana two one that has when it leaves uh, battlefield, um, you can pay two to draw a card. It it can be it can be quite expensive, but um, uh, but uh, yeah, it it, it 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 is exactly in the same gist basically when you can use the ninjutsu in multiple ways. I think that with the Munster specialist, it's especially good because you reload on the Munster specialist, so you can replay it again. Like imagine if you have the um, the one one flyer, you can just basically attack with the one one flyer. Uh, ninjutsu in Munster specialist, bounce something of the opponent to their hand play uh, Moon Circuit Hacker, um, draw a card, play the, uh, replay the, um, uh, what's the name? The 1-1 one, one Flyer, and it costs you the total of five mana to make the whole loop. So uh, for five mana, you drew a card, dealt two damage, bounced something and tapped something. 
it's not a terrible thing. I mean, it sounds cute, but it requires three cards at common and, um, um, and, and it does quite a lot. Okay. Another supported archetype. They, they just like go in Wooburg um, in a big patch. And um, here we have a blue, red, and that's artifact synergies. The signpost is a blue and red, so two mana, two to flyer. Artifact spells you cast cost one less to cast. Um, <clears throat> um, okay, so really good creature. Two mana, two to flyer is always good. It's one of my beloved stat lines uh, because that's the kind of decks I love playing. Um, and it also makes things cheaper and it's better, you know, it's a better effect than, um, uh, than Lana World because it doesn't need tapping, it can still attack, it makes things cheaper. So cards I picked here, Network Disruptor, again, 1-1 one, one Flyer, perfect for tempo decks and I think that this is going to be a tempo deck. Um, flying, so evasive, uh, so it can start smashing. You play this one on turn one, um, Mechanaut on turn two, you already have free flying power very quickly, and then you can focus your the rest of your game uh, to making life miserable for your opponent in so many ways. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, no, I mean, better than tapping Mana Dork. Uh, I didn't mean that it's better than Lana or Elf, it's different completely, but uh, just better than tapping for mana and just getting this effect. And you can play multiple artifacts and still get an effect. Like, for example, you play this and on turn three, you can play this Patchwork Automaton and, uh, and, 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 and Covert Technician easily from their mana costs, even without using Ninjutsu. But okay, I, 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 I go ahead of myself. Uh, another card that I want to um, uh, draw attention to is Cover Technician. Because you play already those evasive threats, Cover Technician is a 3-mana 2-4, but has Ninjutsu 2. And whenever it deals combat damage to a player, you may put an artifact card with mana value less or equal to that damage from your hand into the battlefield. So you can Ninjutsu it in, it deals 2 damage, you can put a 2-mana uh, uh, two artifact into play without, pesting, uh, without uh, paying its uh, mana cost. Since you're going to be playing lots of those, that's a quite um, a, a, that's a quite possible um, uh, scenario that you get like a freebie. You, there is basically there is the two mana artifact that you can sacrifice for two mana to draw two cards. You can just play it for free, so you basically then get a divination for two later in the game somewhere. Uh, another card that I wanted to draw because I heard like lots of comparison is the Sky Swimmer Koi, uh, and that's a four mana three three flyer. Hello, Phantom Monster. Whenever an artifact enters the battlefield under your control, you may draw a card if you do discard a card. And I heard lots of people comparing it to the uh, three three flyer from Crimson Vow that uh, whenever you cast instant on sorcery, uh, you could look at the top card of your library and uh, uh, put it in the graveyard or, or keep it there. But looting is not the same. Looting is basically, if you set it up right, it's like drawing a card. And yeah, exactly. It, it's a May ability, so you don't have to like loot your good card or, or gamble drawing a second good card when you already have one good one. But if you have a land that is useless to you because your deck is very close to the ground and the, the Sky Swimmer Koi was the top of your mana curve, you can easily set up that you don't draw lands anymore because every land that you draw, you just play an artifact, um, discard the land, draw gas. Uh, so, uh, you know. Um, 
Yeah, and I, I think that this card is going to be really good in that uh, archetype, also because it has it is a three three evasive flyer. And I think that this deck is going to be really uh, dependent on having red removal because I think you know curving in one fly one one flyer on turn one, two two flyer on turn two. Then from turn three, you want to control the board because your clock is already fast enough uh, for most of the things, um, and you can focus on disrupting the opponent and and making sure that they will never be able to uh, to disrupt your early uh, offense. Oh yeah, there is also the two-one artifact that uh, whenever you discard something, uh, you can play it, and that's again with Sky Swimmer Koi will work fantastically. So I think yeah, uh, thank you very much, Cardboard Nomad, for that syner additional synergy. That's great. Uh, then we move to the red part and artifact part, and I just wanted to take Patchwork Automaton is one of the best payoffs for this deck. It's a two-mana one-one with Ward Two, which is very important because it will not die very easily in the beginning of the game. Whenever you cast an artifact spell, put a plus one plus one counter on Patchwork Automaton. So I think that you know you can play this thing on turn two with little worry because um, there will be few cards that can actually deal with it that early. Um, and you can just start spawning cheap artifacts and make it into a three three four four whatever. Um, and later in the game, there is the Rainforest Ronin, which is a one one two two haste. At the beginning of your end step, bounce it back to your owner to, to your hand. And it's an artifact creature, also samurai for some reason, which may be maybe relevant uh, uh, even in this deck if you if you play with one of the Yamaz the red Yamazaki brother. But in the beginning, it can ping for four or something because you play it, attack for two, play it, attack for two. Then it gets um, overwhelmed. It can stay in your hand. It has channel when you can discard it and draw a card. But if you have something like Patchwork Automaton or Sky Swimmer Koi, you can basically play it. For one red, just to have the I cast an art uh, an artifact spell, and then it just bounces at the end of the turn, and you can repeat the same thing next turn. It's very cheap, and it can enable all those um, abilities that um, uh, that tr that trigger when you cast an artifact. So um, uh, maybe the best home for that card in, in in the set because you both want early creatures and early damage to get the tempo advantage, and it can give you a, like a relatively reasonably priced uh, value engine later in the game. And the last card I wanted to draw attention to is the Experimental Synthesizer. So one red uh, artifact when it enters the or leaves the battlefield and, and again leaves the battlefield. If it bounce, if it's bounced, uh, it leaves the battlefield. If it gets exiled, it also leaves the battlefield. But whenever that happens, you can exile the top card of your library and until end of turn, you may play that card. Now, if you want to play low to the ground deck, this might be good. But I think that in some builds that I propose, it might actually be pretty bad in this deck. So uh, a card that can be amazing or bad, depending on how you build your tempo uh, artifact deck. And then you can also sacrifice it to make a 2-2 white samurai with vigilance uh, at sorcery speed. So, um, you know, you can accrue some value. And there is plenty of shenanigans that let you rebuy artifacts from graveyard. So, um, yeah. Oh yeah, and Ronin can be a surprise ninjutsu uh, enabler. Yeah, that's true. Cardboard Nomad is on fire now. <clears throat> so, the interaction I wanted to draw your attention to is something I learned in Theros Beyond Death from watching a bunch of uh, Ham uh, Kyle Rose's streams. If you put a one drop and a two drop, the next logical step is that 
I can have counter spells and then I don't really care what my opponent is doing. And the good part of this set is that there are good counter spells that are way better in the artifact decks. And I'm talking about Disruption Protocol, which if you control an untapped uh, artifact, um, basically is a counter spell for the cost of counter spell. So two blue, uh, blue, blue, which is great and limited because you just need to leave two Wada open. Uh, so, you know, you can play turn one, a creature, turn two, a creature, turn three, blah, whatever artifact, or maybe not attack with one of your creatures suspiciously and leave up the disruption protocol and start slamming the opponent and um, and have protection. And there is a nice thing in Mirror Shirt Club, which is a three mana counter spell as channel. So um, you can pay three discarded and it's basically a three mana mana leak. But if you draw it late, it's a 7 mana 5 7 with ward 3, which is quite useful. Also, an artifact. Well, if you really need that extra artifact trigger on turn 9. Uh, but, uh, you know, it does what your deck wants to do, so it can counter something early. And if you happen to have it late, you can play it. You're, you're not sad by having a 5 7 with ward. So, um, possibly these two cards can build this sort of like counter spell tempo deck. And then you can play things like Thirst for Knowledge because. If you leave your mana on top for counter spells, if they don't play anything, you just just thirst, dump something in the graveyard, get two more cards, and continue with your uh, aggression. And and then the next turn you can easily keep the um, keep the um, counter spells up. For instance, disruption protocol on turn four you can play the two mana draw two cards uh, artifact that needs two mana to be sacrificed and leave mana for Disruption Protocol. If they play something, you can Disruption Protocol and tap this artifact. If they don't play anything, you sacrifice, draw two cards, and you move on to Disruption Protocol next turn. So uh, yeah, I think that the Counterspell Tempo deck is a possibility, especially if you have plenty of red removal, um, uh, to be able to catch up if you are behind in the beginning. Okay. No, oh, my absolute favorite. I think I, the deck that I want to be good. It's, <laughs> it's probably not good, but I want it to be good. Blue green is sort of a channel deck. A cardboard nomad. I would have to really look through the spoiler and, and, and think from that perspective, which I didn't do. Um, so I don't know. But I think because the counter spells are cheap, you can keep up putting tempo because you can play on one, as I said, on turn four, you can play a two drop and keep up the counter spell up. So um, that, that's something that has not been possible in limited for a long time. I think two mana counter spell is absolutely powerful. So um, you probably want to prioritize red two drops in such a scenario because you want to keep the two blue mana up. Uh, so that you can play a two drop and keep up the mana for the counter spell. But um, yeah, that's that's very much going into the nitty gritty. Uh, so I think that without the flash, without the vexing gull, you can still play the same game because you um, uh, because you can start playing things very early and keep up this counter spell in the same turn. So the <clears throat> signpost uncommon for the blue green is colossal sky turtle seven mana four colorless green green blue. Uh, it's a 6-5 flying turtle with ward 2. However, this is a, like, uh, uh, I think uh, Ethan um, uh, from uh, Lords of Limited called it a charm because it has a triple functionality. It has channel, 
two and a green discard Colossal Sky Turtle, return target card from your graveyard to your hand, and it has channel, one and blue, discard Colossal Sky Turtle, return target creature to its owner's hand. So, early in the game it can be as a tempo piece, when you can just basically bounce something, and late in the game when you have something really good, or maybe like some shenanigans with the, um, uh, with the whatever, the seasons, uh, what was the name? Ah! Seasonal renewal, you can basically return the Colossal Sky Turtle and then, uh, you know, like, basically with, the, with, the, with, with seasons, you can, if you're playing like super grindy loop the loop deck, you can uh, discard Colossal Sky Turtle, return the, uh, uh, the seasons card, play the seasons card, return the Colossal Sky Turtle and a creature or and an enchantment to your hand. And you can repeat that loop um, as many times as you want. With Greater Tanuki, you can gain, uh, you can you can ramp yourself while doing it, so, so you can sort of like start building um, building up this like massive card advantage uh, at great mana cost. I would like to very strongly stress that at great mana cost. And I think that this is the key aspect of this deck. That it needs to get into the mana. So. <clears throat> To get to a lot of mana, you need to fulfill three criteria. Two criteria and one thing that will really be necessary for you to win. First criteria is you need to survive. And that's why I put Moonfolk Puzzle Maker, the one for flyer that uh, when it becomes tap scry one. Um, I think that it will be decent in this deck. And if you have multiples of those, I would actually probably play the one mana uh, blue artifact that you can tap another artifact to give one mana because you can basically use it to scry every turn. Um, and Bamboo Grove Archer, uh, that's a 3-3 three, three for two mana with Defender and Reach. Now, in a good scenario, this thing can basically stop ninjutsu decks um, in their blocks because it blocks the 1-1 one, one flyer that will usually enable ninjutsu, it kills a bunch of stuff. The problem is that if you play the one black removal on it, it becomes a liability rather than the benefit. So I still don't know. It depends on how many people play the one mana um, uh, black enchantment, how good it is in stopping your opponent. But I think, you know, like if you play this on turn two, this on turn three, you sort of stabilize the board quite early and then you can start uh, doing things like careful cultivation, which is either discard it and create a 1-1 one, one human uh, token with, which taps for mana, or you can enchant the creature, make it big, give it reach, and also it gives double mana. So you can choose that and that ramps you quite a lot with the mana. Uh, Greater Tanuki is another uh, key piece when you probably want to start with channeling it and, and ramping yourself and then getting it back with the, with the season or something and, um, and then playing it as the, as the, as the chunk. Now, this deck, I think, splashes really well. So you have open, you're open to playing bombs from other colors, or you can play shrines if you get the right uh, concentration of them. Because of your ramping, you will probably have more mana to actually activate those shrine abilities while still being alive. I think that if this deck works as I think it is, it will have the same exact problem as the kicker deck in Zendikar. And I think that it might be like trying to do similar things as the kicker deck in Zendikar. So basically early stage of the game is survival. Later stage of the game is you completely take over the game because you're doing things that the other decks don't even, 
don't even think that they might ever have tools to do. The problem with the green, uh, blue deck in Zendikar was that it was card hungry and mana hungry. So you need to hit your lands and you need to draw cards because you will run out of steam and then you have like bazillion mana and nothing to do. And that's why I think like things like Mnemonic Sphere or or maybe the five mana aura that um, that uh, uh, starts drawing that draws cards um, um, as I think chapter two or something uh, is important. Uh, now Moonsnare Specialist is another thing to keep you alive and also a very good reminder: you don't need to ninjutsu it in at four mana. It's still a decent, perfectly serviceable mana war that generates tempo. It's basically when you think about it, sort of like a sorcery speed uh, revenge in those decks because you bounce something to their hand yes okay it's not on the top of the library whatever but they lose so much tempo because of that and that's where you can actually survive so you can you know on turn two nothing end of turn channel the careful cultivation your turn tap for mana Munzner specialist bam slam Thank you, ma'am. Bounce whatever they did. They need to restart. And you're already at four mana, possibly five next turn. So uh, you will have the, the set sort of tempo. Um, so yeah, this is the blue green. And here is my like, I want to do this thing. I so much want to do this thing. But for that, this is the only interaction that I actually do with the rare. But uh, Weaver of Harmony, this card, I so much want to use it. So Weaver of Harmony is two mana. Enchantment creature snake druid. It's a two two four two. So you know already solid stats. Other enchantment creatures you control get plus one plus one. But the ability is the key. Green tap copy target activated or triggered ability you control from an enchantment source. And that word source is absolutely essential here. You may choose new targets for the copy. Enchantment source. It means an enchantment that's on board, but also an enchantment that is an enchantment card in your hand, which means you can target the channel abilities. So I can channel the great, uh, greater Tanuki, copy the ability, and I can basically ramp myself for two lands for four mana. Uh, I can, this is the best one, basically. I can channel the green ability of the Colossal Sky Turtle, discard Colossal Sky Turtle as a cost of it, then copy it. Uh, so with the copy, I can return the Colossal Sky Turtle to my hand that I just discarded. And with the actual ability, I can return something else, like a Greater Tanuki, for example. So basically, I get myself a uh, regrowth with buyback at instant speed that is uncounterable for, uh, for four mana when I do that. So yeah, I want to do it all day long with the Weaver of Harmony and, and, and the right deck. So um, yeah, super, super stoked about uh, drafting this rare and trying to build this kind of a grind engine uh, uh, deck. No, not excited about this uh, interaction. I'm super stoked. And you know, even if you don't do the channel shenanigans with it, it can still like um, double some of the um, saga effects. Like for instance, the four mana saga that draws two forests will now draw four forests. So you will never run out of lands, which is great because uh, you will uh, get to, um, uh, which is, uh, you, you, you get to do your big things quite easily when you draw four forests. And also that means that you draw quite a large portion of gas later in the game. So uh, yeah. Yeah, loop the loops uh, are, are nice. And especially when they work in that kind of elegant way, I think. And also the fact that it's uncounterable, you just need to keep some of the, uh, give hexproof to protect your Weaver of Harmony and you're, you're just good. Um, 
And at some stage, they will have to waste their removal on it while you while you just dump colossal sky turtles and greater tanukis all over the place. And what are they going to do about it? Okay, black red. We are three archetypes from the end, and this one, honestly, this is probably going to be a very good um, archetype that is probably going to take a long time to build like a very good version because I think that this is a particularly tricky archetype but it can be super super damaging when I look at the Oni cult anvil the signpost uncommon it's an artifact for black and red um, not a creature just an artifact whenever one or more artifacts you control leave the battlefield another important thing leave the battlefield uh, during your turn, create a 1-1 colorless construct artifact creature token. This ability triggers only once each turn. Uh, so it also has top sacrifice an artifact, only cult, anvil deals one damage to each opponent, you gain one life. So drains for one, basically. So what you can do with it is you can trigger any loss of the artifact and you get a 1-1 one -one as, as a gift. You can then sacrifice that 1-1 one -one and um, drain them. Or you can just build an army of one ones at some stage. What I can see in this deck is there are a couple of cards. Like first of all, Kami of Industry I think is going to be great in that because you want to sacrifice uh, enchant uh, artifacts, which means um, that you can sacrifice them. That means that uh, the reanimation effect from Kami will always have targets, and it also be useful because uh, you will get an artifact, some effect, and then you can sacrifice the next step, or you can sacrifice it before with Onical, drain them, and then create a one-one colorless construct as well. So uh, I think that this card is going to be great. Also, the three-six body is going to be like super um, obstructive for the opponent if they are on the ground. So um, I think that's going to be pretty fine. A uh, couple of combos in that you if you're generating a lot of one one colorless construct artifact creature tokens things like ambitious assault can be quite backbreaking so i think that this card is going to be particularly good in this archetype because you can attack with four one ones and uh, with the plus two is amazing now ambitious assault is even more amazing if you control a modified creature uh, because then you draw a card so i think iron apprentice is a quite neat piece because it is modified itself, but even if they get rid of it, and if you have another creature, you just put a counter from it on the other creature and you still have something modified. So um, it does already what you want. It's like a cheap artifact uh, with some abilities that you are quite happy to sacrifice and it makes this card better. Um, uh, so I think it's going to be quite an important uh, piece. So this deck instantly reminds me of the Mardu decks in Ikoria, where you had those, uh, you, you generate some creatures, you attack with some things and you make 1-1 one, one humans and you sacrifice them with the weaponize the monsters and, um, and, and maybe there's some kind of ways to sacrifice them and um, um, draw some cards like with the poacher, but here you will use other, other engines to do that. So I, I think that there's plenty of that. Um, if I play Iron Apprentice, I'm quite happy with playing Iron Apprentice on turn one and then Kumano faces Kakazan Saga on turn two. Now, Kumano faces Kakazan Saga is uh, chapter one, it deals one damage to each opponent. Um, chapter two, whenever you cast your next creature spell this turn, that creature enters the battlefield with an additional plus one, plus one counter on it. So basically, I can imagine, you know, nothing on turn one. Turn two, I play Kumano and Iron Apprentice. Iron Apprentice gets two counters. 
If it dies, it moves all of its counters on target creature control. So on turn three, I can um, get my uh, second side of the Kumano, swing with the Iron Apprentice. If they don't block, they get hit by two. Um, if they do kill it, uh, I get a 4-4, basically, because I will put my two counters on the uh, other side of Kukumano. Um, another card, Virus Beetle. Um, it's an artifact, so I can sacrifice it. I am happy to lose it, because it already did its job of discarding. Um, and, you know, it's a 1-1, one -one, so they, 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 you know, they will probably likely block it. If they don't block it, there is a couple of black ninjutsu things that are also artifacts, like Mukutai Ambusher is one of them. Uh, so if they either stumble or I have a cheap removal, I can, you know, on turn three, kill their only blocker, um, attack with the virus beetle, um, flash in the Mukutai Ambusher, return the beetle, and next turn replay the beetle, um, and they discard another card, and I'm already winning the attrition war. Uh, there is another card that is... Um, really looking strong in this deck and that's the um what's his name you're already dead or something the one mana spell that when a creature was dealt damage this turn kill it and draw a card because you have things like the virus beetle they are incentivized to block um they are incentivized to block them with bigger things and then i can just uh, finish off the kill with the one mana spell and draw a card so it's a it's a it's a great trade for me uh, especially with the, that many one ones so it can create the sort of like damned if you do, damned if you don't uh, kind of feeling. So yeah. Okay, almost there. Black green. I, I, I think that I should include a slide in every presentation about black green, which says, just don't play black green. Although we don't know yet. Um, it's an early part of the, oh, look, I managed to put the right card in this slide. Um, I think, you know, it's uh, it's still early days, but it looks like it's a very underwhelming archetype that doesn't have like a coherent theme. So I guess that black green is going to be the sort of, oh, I just want to um, play some creatures that are good on rate and, 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 and do some stuff. And, and, and I have some value things like the Gloom Shrieker and I'm happy with that. But I don't see like a predominant theme what I do think that this deck might be decent at is the sort of like a second tier version of the enchantment deck. Because there is there is some enchantments in black um, and green has some enchantment synergy. So if white is cut off, maybe you can do something with black green. And I think that especially um, it will probably be quite decent with splashing colors. So maybe the black green is the sort of home for shrines deck when you can Green and black shrine together are going to be really good because the um, the black shrine kills small creatures. The green shrine becomes big very quickly, and then um, they will have to block with the big creatures on the shrine and then and, and kill them. So uh, maybe that's an interesting part because you have this uh, recursion um, um, theme. The gloom shrieker returns a creature from graveyard. Um, uh, we have a couple of other things like Season of Renewal will be possible. The um, Reanimator spell that um, someone mentioned in the chat would be pretty good in there, I guess. Uh, so maybe you can you can do that with, with cheap channel creatures. So for example, you can do that with um, um, 
you can either splash the turtle or you can put a couple of tanukis and uh, and basically uh, recur them uh, and, and get it like that. I'm interested about this card and I think it's just generally pretty strong. Uh, but I think it may be the strongest in this uh, attrition-y uh, black-green. It's called the, Night, the Long Reach of Night and it's 4-mana Saga. First two chapters are the same. Each opponent sacrifices a creature unless they discard a card. So you nap something, whatever whatever happens, twice. And then it exiles into an 0-4, I think with Menace that has is 0-4, but uh, when it attacks it gets the power um, as much as creatures in graveyard of the opponent. So um, if you have some removal and some attrition, you can fill it in pretty quickly and you know you get like a 3-4 that can grow with the, with the game. So uh, that's interesting. I think because there might be some uh, enchantment synergies, Twisted Embrace will be really good in that um, um, in that um, deck. Twisted Embrace, of course, is the four mana aura in black that you enchant an artifact or a creature, and when it enters the battlefield, you destroy a creature, and the creature that you enchanted uh, gets plus one, plus one if it's a creature, and obviously nothing if it's a vehicle. And... Um, I put this card, I still don't know what to think of it. I think it looks reasonably strong. Because, okay, I'm talking about Reckoner Shakedown. That's three mana, uh, so two and a black uh, sorcery. Target opponent reveals their hand. You may choose a non-land card from it. If you do, that player discards that card. If you don't, put two plus one plus one counters on a creature or a vehicle you control. So the problem with those spells is usually like, you cast it and there's like nothing in their hand and you're like, Damn. But with this one, you actually might do something useful. If they don't have anything that you want to discard, just put counters on your creature. It's not amazing, but it's a good insurance policy for that kind of spell. Bond to King. Very, very good point. Um, Bond to King mentioned that the 4-3 that bounces an enchantment and gains 3 life deserves a mention here. The Geothermal Kami. I think that it definitely does um, uh, warrant a mention um, because you can return your Twisted Embrace. There is plenty of things that you want to return and, and replay, like Gloom Shrieker, for example, um, to get the trigger again. Because Gloom Shrieker's problem is that if it dies, you exile it, but you can still bounce it with the Gloom Shrieker, gain a couple of life and, and, and rebuy something else. Who knows? Maybe you can rebuy the Geothermal Kami after Chump blocks uh, uh, another 4-4 um, um, on the opponent's attacks. And then you just replay Gloom Shrieker, get back the Kami, replay the Kami, bounce back the Gloom Shrieker, blah, blah, blah. You know, loop, loops, loops everywhere. Loops. Because that's Dave Humphrey's design of the limited sets that I'm so much looking forward to. And we got to the last one. Um... And here I'm going to do slightly different thing. So normally I told you about those like hidden maybe synergies or maybe sometimes less hidden and quite obvious. And this time I am going to talk about one card basically. So the archetype is the red green and the theme is modified creatures. Um, and I think that this theme is pretty badly supported. I hope I'm wrong, but I, I, I'm not going to be surprised if this is the potentially weakest of the archetypes, even though the monkey on the uh, signpost uncommon is very cute. Signpost uncommon is invigorating hot spring, um, one red green for free mana, you get an enchantment uh, that comes with four plus one plus one counters on it. 
Uh, modified creatures you control have haste, and you can remove the counter to put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control, activated only as a sorcery and only once each turn. And there is things that care for modified creatures, weirdly in black for some cases, um, but not very many. It's not like a super uh, supported theme. There is, however, one thing that I think can be pretty decent at a common, especially if you have multiples. And that's the heir of the ancient fang. That's a three mana, two, three, and it enters the battlefield with a plus one, plus one counter on it if you control a modified creature. So I think that this card should be available to you in any number uh, when you draft the modified deck because it should be very open for you to be interested in going into it and from what I see in the beginning. The problem is not so many ways of getting a modified creature on turn two. So if I will be drafting this uh, archetype, barring you know uh, getting invigorating hot springs in large amount, which of course can happen, and then you don't have to worry about it because you play invigorating hot springs, modify something, and then you can play the air of the ancient fang, and it gets the counter because there is something modified. But if I don't have many invigorated hot springs, I want to make sure that this deck allows me to get the air of the ancient fang as a three four as often as possible um, um, on turn three. And there's not so many cards that do it. So uh, one card that can do it is the Kappa Tech Wrecker, the uh, two mana, one three Ninja Turtle. That also might have been a trope, I'm not sure. But um, it's a two mana, one three, and it enters the battlefield with a Death Touch counter on it. Um, and Death Touch counter is a counter, so it makes it modified. So that's a very good example of a <coughs> two mana creature that uh, is modified naturally. So if I play Kappa Tech Wrecker on turn two, I can play the Heir of the Ancient Fang on turn three, and it enters with a counter, it starts my counter chain. So that's pretty cool. Uh, another option is One Drops and Coiling Stalker, and hopefully, uh, and hoping that you can get in with it. So if you play a One Drop and attack with it on turn two, you can uh, ninjutsu in Coiling Stalker, which is a two mana, two one, uh, with ninjutsu two mana. When it deals combat damage to a player, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control that doesn't have a plus one, plus one counter in it. So if you have a one drop into this, maybe on turn two, you get the Coiling Stalker that is a three, two, and it's modified, so you can play turn three, uh, Air of the Ancient Fang. The easiest thing, obviously, is the Iron Apprentice. Um, the one, one artifact that we talked already before, that is naturally modified. So that's like a great way of uh, activating your air of the ancient fang uh, super early. Um, and there's other options, like uh, for instance, I put the explosive entry, that's the two mana sorcery, destroy up to one target artifact, put a plus one plus one counter on up to one target creature. Again, you need a one drop, but you know, maybe you can put the one mana death toucher or uh, maybe you can put on the monka or the rabbit battery or something. And then you can put like an um, explosive entry, um, destroy some cheap artifact that the opponent has, put a counter on the thing that you had on the board, and then turn three, you can play Air of the Ancient Fang. Now, obviously there's going to be bazillion builds of this deck, but I just wanted to focus on this one particular card. And, um, you know, if you chain the Heirs of the Ancient Fang as you should when you draft this deck, because you probably should have access to all of them, um, with more modified creatures, you will st start 
attacking and losing them. I think that Aki Ember Keeper is an interesting option there because whenever a non-token modified creature you control dies, create a 1-1 spirit creature token. Uh, so uh, you can start smashing your heirs of the Ancient Fang and while they lose their creatures, you basically lose a creature, but you keep a 1-1 part of it. So uh, yeah. Okay. Whew, that was the last archetype. Uh, yeah, as, as I said, I think that this one is uh, slightly bad. Oh, my throat is gone. Okay, some random thoughts. I basically finished with the archetypes, but I have like a couple of takes on cards that I didn't mention, maybe. And the first one is Era of Enlightenment. Uh, that's a two mana aura, one and blue, one and white. First chapter, scry two. Second chapter, gain two life. Third chapter, exile it and put a 2-2 two -two first strike, uh, Hand of Enlightenment into play. Now, this card might fool you into thinking, ooh, 2-2 two -two first striker, that's a good offense. I think that this is like a perfect defensive saga in multiples because first strikers stack very well as a very good um, uh, defensive force. And... Every ability on this saga screams to me defensive card. Its first scries give you some selection, you know, um, um, controlish decks who want to get that kind of uh, selection early. Then you gain life, nice cushion, and then you get two to first striker. Like two or three two to first strikers become a wall that is really, really, really um, um, tough to break. Um, so this encourages attacking and can build you up to the later game when you can take over with time bombs. Carva, you're in detention because you're late, but you know, compliment takes you a bit out of the detention. So I'll think about it. Maybe you won't be in detention, but we'll see. Okay, so that's the first thing. Like uh, Arrow of Enlightenment is potentially a very good tool for control decks or uh, slower decks to, to sort of stonewall or first strike wall themselves because it does all the things that will um, uh, let it be a good defensive creature in the later game. And, you know, at some stage it can be also aggressive, like with a couple of other cards that, uh, that, that are um, that inclined in this format. Mm. Random thought number two, invoke spells. Three of them are probably unplayable for different reasons. Um, the red one, there's just not enough sorcery and instance to, to do something interesting. The black one, I don't think it is just worth it on raid. Uh, the blue one is really good, but it's going to be probably really hard to draw almost a mono blue deck uh, to play it. But green one, and which might surprise you, white one, I think are going to be playable in decks that are heavy green but not as heavy as you might have heard so first of all green one i think is quite easy to play uh because you have bunch of uh green mana dorks that only give green and you have the uh saga that uh gives you two forests in your hand which basically allows you to play it on turn six in most games um and you know i'm i'm, I'm talking there playing it with something like, um, you know, nine to 10 forests in the deck. And the card is good. So, you know, you get eight, 10 of bodies over two bodies with like abilities. So that's pretty good for five mana. 
Um, so I think Invoke the Ancients is a card that's going to be much easier to play than you might think if you pick the right things. The, the Boseji Saga, I think. You can also... Um, uh, uh, Raccoon Dog is doing a great job in, in, in getting you closer to cast Invoke the Ancients. So yeah, this one is maybe less controversial. White Saga, on the other hand. Ta-da! The Samurai, the 4-4 uh, Vigilant Samurai that brings planes. If you have multiple copies of that, I think that Invoke Justice is quite easily playable. And what's important, <coughs> channeling the Samurai is basically giving you a target for invoking justice. So you can, you know, you start your hand with two planes or something, you, you channel one Samurai, you channel the other Samurai, boom. You have the mana uh, for Invoke Justice. You might not necessarily always play it on turn five, but you know, turn six or seven is quite realistic. And on turn six or seven, getting a four-four vigilance creature and putting four plus one plus one counters on your stuff uh, is still going to be quite powerful. So don't assume that you won't be able to play Invoke Justice. It probably will depend on how many samurais you can get. And if you play something like heavily white-tinted version of white-green, you can still get all the kinds of um, uh, green fixing that will let you, like a Tanuki, that also is a great target for invoking justice and can green you bring back the plane to the battlefield. So I think that those two invoke spells are going to be easier to play than the mana cost suggests. Um, okay. Um... It's probably Mercurial going to happen. Um, okay, so I was thinking about this card. I think that, first of all, the card is good because of the number of the one-drops. If you missed the beginning of the uh, seminar, 27% of common creatures have toughness of one. So um, Life of Toshiro Umezawa can quite realistically nab two creatures for two mana, which is a great rate. But then the problem is, you're stuck with the memory of Toshiro, the 2-3 um, creature that uh, has pay one life at black, spend this mana only to cast an instant or sorcery spell. And I was thinking, like, what would be the best way of leveraging the memory of Toshiro to memorize him uh, appropriately? And I think that Imperial Oath is the way, because uh, this ramps you to that spell. It is a sorcery, so um, it fulfills the criteria. And the three white samurai should, you know, uh, give you enough of a cushion that the paying one life is not going to kill you, basically. So I think that this is a neat, uh, uh, neat thing to introduce to your white-black deck. Basically, Life of Toshiro Umezawa is going to be always good in it, but ramping into Imperial Oath is a nice uh, bonus from the third chapter that is probably the weakest of the um, uh, chapters on the on this saga because uh, otherwise you just end up with a sort of vanilla 2-3 and if that sort of vanilla 2-3 can speed up your um, Imperial Oath it becomes a way better thing than a vanilla 2-3. So yeah, just a random thought there. Okay, another random thought is there is this weird synergy between Lethal Exploit and Twisted Embrace. Oh God, someone, I knew that someone had to write about the uh, Black Invoke. Yeah, but Cicel, is the Black Invoke good enough to be, uh, to, to be, to be paying life to, 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 to ramp into? I know uh, Prokobrito, that was a tongue-in-cheek remark, but uh, <laughs> do we really want that? Do we really want that Invoke? 
But okay, go back to this one. Twisted Embrace, the four mana aura that kills a creature and gives the enchantment creature enchantment creature plus one plus one. And Lethal Exploit have a weird uh, synergy. Um, because Lethal Exploit gives target creature minus two, minus two until end of turn and an additional minus one, minus one until end of turn for each modified creature you controlled as you cast the spell. So sometimes, weirdly, I think it's going to be better to play Twisted Embrace first um, sort of modify your creature because you play it as an aura, kill something, and then next turn you have this instant lethal exploit that does minus three, minus three. Then to use the cheaper uh, removal first and then twist and embrace later. Because twist and embrace, apart from killing, makes your creature bigger so uh, you can actually attack favorably with it. So, um, uh, yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how those uh, two antagonizing um, uh, parts of those spells uh, do. So on one hand, you maybe want to spend cheaper removal to kill something smaller. On the other hand, Twisted Embrace gives you a much bigger tempo swing and Lethal Exploit becomes better. So actually you don't cry that much about losing the better removal. Uh, Mercurial Twisted Embrace is definitely a twist on Blessing of Iroas. Okay, that was my random thoughts. I didn't have many random thoughts, but I also blabbed about for um, for two hours. So, you know, maybe that's enough. So with that, acknowledgements to 17 Lens team. Didn't use much of the 17 Lens data today, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to use the heck of it next week. So um, uh, stay tuned for the first data from uh, Kamigawa next week. Um, so yeah, Viral Misnomer is the person behind 17 Lands. Hululu and Grant Wu are one of a couple of the devs that are present on Twitter as well. So I encourage you to follow them. Also, uh, this will be available as a podcast without the lovely graphics um, as magic numbers on whatever podcast provider you use. And if it's not there, let me know on Twitter or any or on Discord or something so I can uh, make sure that it goes to the your preferred way of listening to it. I'm also going to put it on YouTube. Uh, so I would like to, to thank Fake Jake Brown, uh, AKA Uncle Cardboard, who's helping me with putting those episodes out. Uh, I think that right now we have a bonus episode when we put the basically um, the uh, audio of the skeleton stream I did together with uh, Sander Kirstens, SL Kirstens and uh, uh, Jason ILTG. Uh, so that's hopefully online now if you want to listen to uh, how we put our skeletons and what we think um, is going to be important in Kamigawa, give it a listen. And for the people that listen to the podcast version, actually, I would like to thank Sesku and um, um, uh, Mana Junkie for the music I used uh, in the intro great song called You Do You, Mana Junkie, which I thought was very apt for Magic the Gathering podcast. And with that, yeah, thanks, you guys. And um, start slamming that Kamigawa tomorrow. And let me know if you did any of the, uh, any of the weird uh, combinations. I'm especially curious if someone is going to do the... Um, let's rewind. Uh, the Haiko Yamazaki and Ninja's Kunai combo. Uh, I really am curious. So just like tag me if you have screenshots of that. I'm going to be super stoked if someone managed to uh, use that interaction to win games. 